This morning, I, I do want to start off a little bit differently, though. I want to start off our time together uh, by playing a little game. You know, I'm in children's ministry, so this is kind of what we do. So we're going to play a, a little game. And how many of you have ever heard of the game Tribond? Anybody ever play the game Tribond? Got it. All right, we've got a couple of you. Well, basically, the idea behind Tribond is a game where it asks the players to identify uh, what is the common link between three different things. And so, you know, I brought some sample questions here to kind of uh, ask you and see, if, see how good you guys are. First service was pretty good, but, uh, you know, they were easy. So we'll see, we'll see how you guys do. And here's the first one. If I were to ask you, what do these three have in common? Refrigerators, track stars, and nylons. Refrigerators, track stars, and nylons. What do those three have in common? They run. You guys are pretty good. Not, not as quick as the first service, but you're getting there. All right. See what happens on the second one here. Here's another one. If I were to ask you, what do these three have in common? Florida, a locksmith, a piano. Oh, man, you guys didn't hesitate right there. That was, that was on it. All right, well, you know, I've been taking it easy on you guys because I've been giving you questions right from the game. I'm, I've come up with my own. I've come up with my own tri-bond, and I'm going to see how good you guys really are because now you're coming from a whole different way of thinking, all right? So here it is. Here's one more. If I were to ask you, what do these three have in common? A hanging picture, a ship in a bottle, and a turtle sitting atop a fence. A hanging picture, a ship in a bottle, and a turtle sitting atop a fence. Huh, you guys aren't that good, huh? Uh-huh. Take that. All right, well, here it is from my mind to yours right here. Basically, if you guess that they are things that had help getting there, then you would be great. You would be correct, right? Things that had help getting there. Now, again, humor me a little bit and pretend that each of these items that I just told you, right, the... Uh, the hanging picture, the ship in the bottle, the turtle on top of a fence. Just imagine, if you would, that all of a sudden these three items could talk. Nothing else. They weren't given any additional abilities, right? They were still those items. The only difference is they could now talk. Again, no added abilities. They're still those items, but they can just talk, all right? Uh, and suppose that each of these three things began to talk and, and they began to brag about how they got to their respective places. All right? Suppose that the picture started bragging about just how hard it had to work to find the right size nail. Just to get that right nail and then to pound that nail into the wall. And, and then lastly, how much he had to strain to get himself just so and position just right so that he was level and laying flush against the wall and everything like that. And, and the picture goes and tells you all of these things that he had to do to get himself just so. Then suppose that the ship started to chime in and, and he bragged to you about how difficult it was to maneuver himself through that small little opening of the bottle. Right, how great his skill was so to ensure that he passed safely through the bottle opening without damaging any part of the hull or the mast or the sails. It took some masterful sailing to position himself just so to get inside of that bottle. And after that, the turtle finally chimes in and he speaks up and he starts bragging about how much muscle and determination it took for him to climb all the way to the top of that fence. And he boasts of his training regiment, whereby he limited his, his diet to eating nothing but fruits and vegetables. And he worked out three times a day just so that he could finally climb to the top of that fence. 
How would you feel as you sat there and you listened to the boasting of these three things, knowing full well that each of them, despite their great boast, had gotten to where they were because someone had really placed them there and it wasn't their own doing? How would you feel as you listen to these three insignificant things attempt to take credit for something that they clearly didn't and couldn't have done? And yet, how many times do you and I attempt to boast about things that we have done? How many times do we seek to take credit for that which really is truly God's glory and God's responsibility? The problem that most of us have is the fact that we fail to practice humility. The Bible has a lot to say about humility and our, and our need to practice it. And so this morning, we're going to try to unpack some biblical truths that will hopefully help us to rightly view ourselves, but also rightly view God such that we might grow in our practice of, of humility. Now, before we launch into our study this morning, I feel the need to let you know that I come to you not as somebody who has arrived in this area. I don't come before you and say, look, you know what, if I'd have been around the time of Moses' writing... Um, He would have said, you know, be humble like Brock. No, I don't come to you like that, right? I'm not the humblest man to walk the face of the earth. I'm not even close. Um, So I don't come to you as one that has arrived in this area. I don't come to you as somebody who's got this all together. You can just check with my family. They'll let you know I do not have this together, all right? But I do come to you as somebody who wants to open up the Word of God and who wants to change myself in this area. And so hopefully we can all come with a desire to hear and to obey the voice, not of of me, but of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and God as he's revealed it in his word. And so um, that our pride might be gone away with and that our humility might be such that the, the one who is worthy of all praise and honor and glory and power would receive that in our lives and we would be vessels of honor that God can do great things in and through rather than a bunch of prideful arrogant people that uh, God is not able to use. So with that in mind, let us pray that God will work to that end. Please join me. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for allowing us this time to gather together. And I pray right now that um, you will just allow us to really focus our minds on the, the truth of your word, that you help us to set aside any distractions that might be getting in the way of us really listening. <clears throat> and that, Father, you will just help us to think rightly about all that your word has to say. We thank you that you are a great God, that you are gracious and merciful and kind in your dealings with us. And I pray right now, Father, that you will just help us to have ears to hear, that we would be a people that would take these teachings and these things that your word has to say, and we would apply them into our lives, that we might not just be hearers of the word, but actually doers of the word, that we might walk in humility, so that we might bring glory and honor and praise and glory to Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, for, again, the time that we could gather together. May you bless the teaching and the preaching of your word. I ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. We'll open up your Bibles with me this morning, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 26 through 31. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 26 through 31. This is what the word of God says. It says, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not, so that he might nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. 
But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, in today's text, we find three truths that if we are to learn them, we are to apply them to our lives, we are sure to grow in humility. Three truths that when we embrace them will go a long way in helping each of us to properly view not only ourselves, but more importantly, to view God the right way. The first truth that we must learn is God's call of the insignificant conflicts our worldly wisdom. God's call of the insignificant conflicts our worldly wisdom. Let's listen to what verse 26 has to say. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. Now, the church in Corinth was going through a, a lot of growing pains, and there was a, a lot of arguing and a lot of bickering that was going on within the, within the church body. And so the, the good news that was preached to them, that they had embraced and that they were holding on to, uh, that brought them all together, it was basically in danger of being pushed aside as individual believers sought to pursue uh, the various wisdoms and teachings of their day. They began to kind of push the gospel out and allow a lot of other stuff in. So in an effort to draw them back to the gospel, in an effort to bring them back to that thing that had brought them together, Paul reminds these brethren of the superiority of God's wisdom. Right? He reminds them that they were not saved because of their their great intellects or their ability to influence the masses or, or even their high social standings. These things simply did not, they didn't possess these things. They didn't belong to them. In fact, Paul makes it painfully clear that the Corinthian believers were not a group that was comprised of, of such individuals. The Corinthians were a group of people that really had no basis for asserting their authority or superiority over anyone especially over one another, because of, for all intents and purposes, they had no wisdom, they had no power, and they had no status. They were a bunch of nobodies, if the truth be told. And Paul wanted them to remember this. He wanted this truth to resonate in their hearts and in their minds, not so that he could beat them up, not so he could kind of make them crawl and grovel on the ground about how inferior they were to everybody else, but rather so that they could understand God is not a respecter of persons when it comes to salvation. God doesn't need anybody's impressive resume of stuff in order to use them. In other words, he does not care who or what you are in regards to the world standards. It means nothing to him. He could care less what your standing is within the world and how respected you may be within the world. That has no bearing when it comes to who you are in the body of Christ. God is not drawn to the beautiful people of the world. His kingdom is primarily made up of a bunch of nobodies. And the reason he does this is to totally shatter the wisdom of the world. Say, look, that is foolishness. The world says it's everything, but I'm going to tell you what, that is foolishness. That means nothing. Listen to the condescending manner in which the philosopher Celsus wrote regarding Christians in 178 AD. Just listen to the way that he speaks down regarding Christians and how they don't bring the, the necessary elements, the, the desirable traits that the world so longs for. Listen, listen to this. He says, quote, Their injunctions are like this. Let no one educated, no one wise, no one sensible draw near. For these abilities are thought by us to be evils. But as for anyone ignorant, anyone stupid... 
anyone uneducated, anyone who is a child, let him come boldly. By the fact that they themselves admit that these people are worthy of their God, they show that they want and are able to convince only the foolish, dishonorable, and stupid, and only slaves, women, and children. End quote. What Celsus saw as a death blow to Christianity, you know, look, these people have nothing. They are nobodies. This is going to end Christianity because they don't have the necessary things to kind of move forward. Well, what he saw as a death blow to Christianity, Paul saw as its greatness. Right? Worldly wisdom will tell you that if you really want to see a movement take off, if you really want to see something get some traction and move forward, if you really want to kind of see it just explode then you got to go after those that are intelligent, those that are beautiful, those that have a, a unique gifting, and those that are powerful, those that are influencers, the shakers, the movers. That's what the world will tell you. Worldly wisdom will tell you that if you're going to get anywhere, then you need to have the right people in your camp, right? You need to surround yourself with the right people because that's how stuff gets done in the world, Right? According to the world, there's no need for the weak and the needy. You simply get rid of them. They get in the way. They prohibit progress. Worldly wisdom only makes room for winners. And it discards those that cannot carry their weight. It just totally throws them out. No need, no value. In Corinth, there were, there were not many wise, according to the flesh. Not many mighty. Not many noble. And yet... Here we see the the maker of these nobodies saw fit to bring these nobodies into his family, right? To adopt them as his children, to make them joint heirs with Jesus Christ. You know, and the the world doesn't get this. The world can't grasp this, right? They don't get that that the things which elevate a man in their system, namely knowledge, influence, rank, do nothing to bring a man into the kingdom of God. Jesus makes this perfectly clear when he prays to the Father in Matthew eleven twenty five. He says this, he says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. You see, it's not as if Jesus is unwilling to save those that, that have any kind of intellect or any kind of worldly wisdom. It's not that he's, he's saying, you know what, you got nothing and therefore, you know, I don't, I don't want you. It's not that he's not willing to take these people. It's just that oftentimes, because these people have these things, their trust and their hope is in them. Their trust and their hope is in their intellect. It's in their looks. It's in whatever it may be that they have. Their trust and their hope is in, in those things. Maybe it's power. Maybe it's possessions, wealth. Because they're trusting in those things, they don't see their need for Jesus. I was talking with a friend of mine the other day about this. Right? God's not opposed to the wealthy. He's not opposed to the, uh, the elite intellectuals of our day. It's just a lot of times people like that, they don't see their need for God. They're so full of themselves and what they have and what they, what they bring into the system that they don't really understand their need for God. They have a hard time seeing their need for a Savior in Jesus Christ. And, and Jesus makes it perfectly clear when speaking to the Pharisees in Luke 5, 31 and 32, that it is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. And that he did not come to call the righteous, 
but sinners to repentance. See, the world's wisdom stands in direct opposition to God's wisdom. While the world seeks to justify itself through its own standards, God seeks to demolish those standards by calling and saving those that the world views as insignificant. In writing to the Corinthian believers, Paul wanted to ensure that they would not be drawn away from the wisdom of God, the wisdom that had saved them despite of the, their less-than-ideal uh, pedigrees and achievements. Without question, God's call of the insignificant conflicts with worldly wisdom. It flies in the face of it. And so the question you need to ask yourself is, which wisdom are you going to cling to? Which one are you going to go after? Which wisdom has the ability to offer you eternal life? Which wisdom is acceptable to the one whom you will one day stand before to give an account of your life? If you and I were to be honest with ourselves, many of us would have to admit that we don't really measure up very well with the world's standards. We're not part of the educational elite. As far as I know, we don't have any world-renowned thinkers amongst us that are teaching at the Ivy League schools, not that I'm aware of. Nor do we have any big-time players in the political realm that are advising the President of the United States or implementing policies that are impacting our entire world. I'm not aware of any of you that have appeared on the Forbes 50 Richest People list, unless you're holding out on us in that case. Don't. No one related to Bill Gates... Warren Buffett or Jeff Bezos. Right? I think it would be appropriate for Paul's remarks in verse 26 to be applied to many of us that are here right now. All right? So brothers and sisters of Calvary Bible Church, consider your calling that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. Now let us never attempt to consider ourselves as being superior to one another. But instead, let us... Let each of us regard one another as being more important than ourselves. Let us never delude ourselves into thinking that we are any way superior to one another because of some worldly standard or measure. Because maybe you have something that the world looks at and says, you're it, you're great, we need you. It's not so in the kingdom of God. Because the moment that you and I start to appeal to worldly wisdom is the moment that we begin to conflict with God's wisdom. And we find ourselves getting in the way of what God is doing. By remembering the utter insignificance of our lives prior to our calling, you and I can begin to practice the humility that is to be ours in Christ. Which leads us to a second truth that we must learn if we are to grow in humility. That is, God's call of the insignificant confounds our personal pride. God's call of the insignificant confounds our personal pride. Let's look at verses 27 through 29. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not, so they may nullify the things that are. So that no man may boast before God. See, there's perhaps no greater condemning sin than the sin of pride. Some believe, and I would include myself in this grouping, that... Pride really is the root of of all sin. In a sermon entitled Pride, Humility, and God, John Stott spoke these words. He writes, At every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is the greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend. 
C.S. Lewis had this to say about pride. He says, quote, The essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride, unchastity, anger, greed, and drunkenness are mere flea-biters in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. End quote. Jonathan Edwards called pride the worst viper that is in the heart and the greatest disturber of the soul's peace and sweet communion with Christ. He ranked pride as the most difficult sin to root out and the most hidden, secret, and deceitful of all lusts. The Bible makes a strong case that there is perhaps no sin that is more offensive to God than pride, so don't just take my word for it or these other writers' words, but let's listen to what the Word of God has to say. In Proverbs 6, 16 through 17, it says this, There are six things which the Lord hates, yes, seven which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes is the very first thing that appears on the list. In Proverbs 8, 13, it says this. It says, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverted mouth I hate. See, pride again tops the list of that which the Lord hates. In Proverbs 16, 5, we are told, Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not be unpunished. See, if you and I are to grow in humility, then we must see our pride as the hideous monster that it is, and we must begin to see ourselves as the poor, weak, base nobodies that we really are. Because here it is, brothers and sisters, until we see ourselves rightly, we will never grow in true humility. And this is just something that's a reality, and I don't know if you sense this in you, but I, I certainly see it in me. I can, I can spot pride a mile away in other people. I see it so clearly in others. I could just call it. But when it comes to my own pride, my own arrogance, I am so blinded by that. Right? We're so quick to see what's wrong with everybody else. Very rarely do we take that time to really take a look at our own hearts, our own way of processing things. But we're never going to grow in humility until we can acknowledge our pride. And again, I don't tell you all of this so that you'll kind of crawl out of here, you know, beating yourself up, calling yourself a worm, uh, anything along those lines. That's not the intent. I, I'm just trying to help you to, to, to think rightly, to not think too highly of yourselves. And again, there's, there's a balance in this, isn't there? I mean, on the one side, God loves us and he cherishes us and, and he loves us so much and that gives us worth and value. Um, so don't take what I'm saying as we got no value because um, we, we do matter to God so much so that he was well pleased to crush his son on our behalf. But on the other side of it, I, I'm trying to help us right now just to kind of see <laughs> um, our lowliness in comparison to God and how we should be approaching God rather than how we oftentimes do. I mean, have you ever stopped and thought about who you are? I mean, again, I, I think... We get so caught up on ourselves and navel-gazing that sometimes we do this too much. But, I mean, if you ever just kind of stopped and, and thought about who you are, and if you've done that honestly, it can be a little scary, right? It can be a little scary to kind of examine yourself to that degree, to kind of see yourself clearly. But let's just, let's just assume that you have something that the world esteems. 
Okay, let, let me give you the benefit of the doubt and say, you know, you're, 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 not, you're not this worm. You've got a whole lot to offer to our culture. You're highly valued within the world. You have, you have gifts and abilities and strengths that, that make you very marketable within the world. So when the world looks at you, they're thinking, that's a winner. Okay, let me just give you that. Let's just say that you've got something that kind of puts you at that point, right? That you have something that the world esteems, something that makes you somebody in the world's estimation. Let me just ask you this. Where, where did that ability come from? Where did, it, where did it come from? How responsible are you really for that talent or that ability? Did you just kind of muster that up within yourself? I mean, even if you did, was it, wasn't it already there for you to kind of pull from? Right? In 1 Corinthians 4, 7, Paul seeks to obliterate the personal pride of the Corinthians by asking the following thing. He says this, For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it. Now, let me let you on something. I, I grew up around athletes, not, not because I was a great athlete, but um, I, I was around the USC football team as a, you know, basically a, a cone jockey. I'd run after cones and pick up sweaty towels and all that sort of stuff. So I was around a lot of athletes, right? And, and again, um, some of these guys, especially at a school like USC, I mean, they just had freakish athletic ability. I mean, some of the things that they could do, the, the speed, the strength, um, the ability to kind of work through all the different things. I mean, just, just freaks of nature, right? Incredible athletic ability. And a lot of times, some of these athletes, not all of them, but a fair number of them, you know, after they've done something incredible, something you just kind of look at and you go, did he really just do that? That's amazing. You know, a lot of times after they did something like that, um, they basically just drew a bunch of attention to themselves, right? Um, they, they act in an arrogant manner, which is a total affront to God. And they give, all of, they give themselves all of the glory and all of the credit. And they're saying, hey, look at me. Look at how great I am. Did you see that play I just made? You wish you could be like that, Right? And they're just soaking it all in. And the crowd's going crazy. And, and, and again, it's just an amazing thing. But it's a total affront to God. Because again, let me ask you, who gave that athlete their athleticism? Who gave them their ability? You know, I could spend, the, I could spend every day in the gym working out. And guess what? I'm not going to make any freakish athletic plays. <laughs> all right? It's not going to happen. All right? It's not in my makeup. But for some of these athletes, it's, it's in their makeup. Now, again, I'm not saying they don't work hard, but they have an ability because, again, God's given them that ability. Now, again, those of you that aren't sports people, and maybe you're just kind of, maybe you're, maybe you're the academic type, right? And you're thinking, well, you know what? Those sports people, they're always into that sort of stuff. Let me, let me come after you a little bit, right? Because um, this, this whole self-promotion, this whole self Look at how wonderful I am. You know, it's not just in the sports world. It's in the, it's in the academic circles as well. You know, there are people that have incredible minds, right? Incredible minds. I mean, they can think about things deeply. And, and, and they're able to think and reason through things that, you know, the average person just can't even begin to comprehend. And, and while they may not get up and dance in front of a camera and boast of their greatness and say, Oh, yeah, look at me, how wonderful I am. I'm so smart. 
You know, if there was a if there was a, a a medium for that, I'm sure they would take it, right? Like a spelling bee, you get some of that a little bit, right? I mean, I'm sure they would take it if it was there. But instead, these highbrows they like to talk to, you know, us lower people, in, in condescending manner. They like to talk down to us, or or they like to talk about things that they know the average person just isn't going to understand, because they don't have a mind like theirs. Right? And so they talk in these big fancy words and these big flowing sentences about things that, you know, you need to have five degrees to be able to talk about. And, and they, they do it. But again, I, I bring it back. Who, who gave these people their minds? Did they, did they have anything to determine what kind of mind they were going to have? I'm not saying they don't work. I'm not saying they don't apply themselves. But you know, more times than not, you have a mind like that because God has given it to you. You know, we are a people who love to take credit for those things that are beyond our control, aren't we? I mean, we like to elevate our particular giftedness above uh, all of the others so that we esteem ourselves and we boast of our greatness, right? So whatever we're good at, that now becomes the measure by which we determine whether somebody's valuable or not. You know, can they do the things that we do? Are they as good at this as I am? Rather than coming back and saying, okay, what does God have to say about these things because again we're so prone to want to elevate ourselves to esteem ourselves and to push other people down because of our pride we lack humility our personal pride cries out for the spotlight right it seeks the attention and and really it's willing to crush anybody or anything that dares to get in our way Right, if there's somebody hindering us from uh, elevating ourselves the way that we want to, we will downplay some quality about them. We will discount something about them so that we can, again, boast ourselves up and make ourselves feel better. And, and a lot of times they don't even realize it. Right? It's just something that goes on in our minds. This is something that we're continually doing. We're pushing people down so that we can elevate ourselves up. See, we need to see ourselves rightly. And we need to to measure ourselves not against the character and the attributes of others, but rather in accordance to the character and the attributes of God. Philip Brooks made an apt comment when he said this. He says, The true way to be humble is not to stoop until you are smaller than yourself, but to stand at your real height against some higher nature that will show you what the real smallness of your greatness is. I love that quote. So, brothers and sisters, I want to challenge you to see the smallness of your greatness today. All right? Don't elevate yourself. Don't compare yourself to a bunch of other people that don't even know you're comparing yourself to them. Come back to the cross. Come back to Jesus Christ. Come back to God. You want to compare yourself? Go ahead. Stand at your full height. Puff your chest out. Show show God how wonderful you are in comparison to him. And let me know how long that works for you. All right? And this is something that we have to kind of look at these things rightly. God's word is perfectly clear in revealing our true condition before God. See, each of us is truly insignificant when we compare ourselves to the, to the one who simply spoke the world and all it contains into existence. We cannot help but be moved to humility when we compare ourselves to the one who is perfect because we certainly are not. You know, it was this understanding that moved the Apostle Paul continually downward over the passing years. Just... Follow his transgression over the years as, as you listen to how he talked about himself as he, as he went on. Uh, writing in about A.D. 59, in 1 Corinthians 59, he says this. He says, I am the least of the apostles, 
And then about in AD 63, in Ephesians 3.8, he writes this. He says, I am the very least of all the saints. And then finally in AD 64, in 1 Timothy 1.15, he writes this. He says, I am the foremost of sinners. See, Paul's view of himself became more and more accurate as he grew in his knowledge and understanding of our Lord Jesus Christ. In view of who Christ is, Paul saw himself as an insignificant, rebellious sinner who had nothing in which to boast of except Christ and him crucified. And so many times, you know, we want to look at the Apostle Paul and we want to lift him up. And certainly there are things that he did, that God did through him, that are worth being praised and, and, and recognized and appreciated. But the Apostle Paul didn't trust in all those good things that he did, right? He didn't see himself as this spiritual superhero that was going to come to save the day, right? He was there to point others to Jesus Christ. And all of those worldly accomplishments, all of that worldly stuff that he had done before was like garbage to him in comparison to knowing Christ. And that's how it needs to be with us as well, brothers and sisters. The more we come face to face with our own insignificance, the more we will grow in humility. The more we see God for who he really is, the more our personal pride will be confounded and ultimately put to death. John Flavel closes up this section well with these words. He says, They that know God will be humble, and they that know themselves cannot be proud. So far in our study, we've seen that God's call of the insignificant conflicts our worldly wisdom, and God's call of the insignificant confounds our personal pride, which now leads us to our third and final truth, which is God's call of the insignificant confirms His matchless mercy. God's call of the insignificant confirms his matchless mercy. Follow along as we look at verses 30 and 31. It says, But by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So what a great, great truth we see in these last two passages. I want you to notice by whose doing we are in Christ, Right? In other words, I want you to notice the one that is responsible for our believing the gospel. And if we look hard, we see that God is the one. We don't even have to look that hard, right? We just see God is the one. He's the one who makes it possible for believers everywhere to be in Christ. It's his doing. He makes it possible. And as we've already learned, it's not our great worldly wisdom, right? It's not our might. It's not even our great family lineage, whatever that may look like for you if you've come from a long line of believers. None of those things make us able to be a child of God. No, it's, it's strictly by God's matchless mercy that you and I are saved, right? It's only by that mercy that you and I are brought into a right relationship with Jesus Christ. And this is evidence throughout the entire Bible in both the Old and New Testaments. I mean, you know, it's never, it hasn't changed, the way God has dealt with his people in the Old Testament and the New Testament hasn't changed. It's always been by his grace and his mercy. And that's evidenced in, as you look at passages like Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 9 in the Old Testament. Right? It says this. It says, The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now there, know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, 
the faithful God who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments. See the same thing in the New Testament, right? We see it spill right over into passages like Romans 5, 8, where it says this, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Titus 3, 5 says this, he saved us not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. You see, these passages and many others like them all throughout the Bible help us to to clearly see that our salvation is not due to ourselves. It's not something that we take all of the credit for, but rather to God and His matchless mercy. You and I are saved not because we're superior in intellect to other people, We're saved because a merciful, gracious God has opened up our eyes and allowed us to see our need for Jesus Christ. And it's his mercy that is grounded in Jesus Christ who became to us the wisdom of God. I mean, it is Christ who was in the beginning with God. He was the living word who took on flesh and and came to dwell amongst us, full of grace and, and truth and revealing his glory as the only begotten from the Father. It is Christ in whom all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And according to Matthew eleven twenty seven, no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. See, it's not our union with Christ that makes us truly wise. Or I'm sorry, it is our union with Christ that makes us truly wise. It's not anything in and of ourselves, by ourselves. It's our union with Christ That makes us truly wise. He is the wisdom from God in the sense that there is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. And Jesus continued to drive this point home to anyone who would listen, to anyone who had ears to hear. In John 14, 6, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus is it. Jesus Christ has become the believer's wisdom, not in a worldly sense like the Corinthians and and many others might have been looking for, but rather in the salvific sense, whereby those who hear and obey his teachings are made wise unto salvation. See, it's this divine wisdom that Paul goes on to further explain with the three terms, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Each of these terms relates back to our salvation that was basically affected in Christ. In speaking of righteousness, Paul is referring to that aspect of salvation whereby the believer is put into a right standing before God. Jesus Christ is the only one who has ever lived a a perfect life, and as a result, he is righteous and thus in a right standing with the Father. And when we trust in the perfect work of, of Christ, God's Son, we share in Christ's righteousness. We are actually credited with that. In Romans 4, 5, Paul writes this, But to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. God gives this to us through faith in Christ. When we place our faith in Christ alone, God actually credits us with a perfect life. No longer does he look at all of those, those things that, are, that we once were clothed in unrighteousness, all those wrong things that we've done, all of those terrible thoughts and actions and ideas that have come through us and been in us, that it's dealt with, right? That is gone away. Christ suffered in our part for that. And now not only that, not only those things go away from us, but now we actually get credited with the righteousness of Christ. He exchanges our, unright- our unrighteousness with Christ's righteousness. 
And let me tell any of you out there that are kind of wondering, is that a good deal? That's a good deal, right? That's something that every one of us should embrace and wholeheartedly grasp onto and praise God for the fact that he he has done that for us. Don't reject that deal. You're not going to get a better offer. This imputed righteousness, it's it's undeserved, and yet it's offered to, to all who will humble themselves and follow Christ. See, because apart from Christ's righteousness, no one will be saved. So let those of us that, are, that have been saved, let us, let us bask in that. Let us rejoice in that. Let us live in humility in this world for that because we realize that didn't come from us. It's nothing but God's kindness and His mercy being poured out on us. The next aspect of salvation that Paul makes reference to is sanctification or holiness. It's, it's, a, it's a term that describes the purity which should characterize the lifestyle of, of, of those that have been saved, right? In 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 4, and verse 7, Paul writes this. He says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. And then jumping down to verse 7, For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. You see, brothers and sisters, through the enabling work of the Holy Spirit, God actually begins to change us, right? He begins to conform us more and more into the image of Christ. And so because the Holy Spirit is working in us, you and I begin to think differently. And as we think differently, we begin to act differently. And please don't misunderstand me. I'm not talking about some kind of sinless perfection here that, you know, as soon as we're saved, we're never going to sin again. We're never going to struggle with bad thoughts. We're never going to do anything wrong no, that's not biblical. The biblical, show, the biblical texts show us that sanctification is, is a process, something that God continues to take us through. And it's not a clean process. It's not like a straight line where we just kind of shoot up. It's kind of like more of a, you know, an up and down type of thing. Somebody referred to it as a, a guy walking up the steps with a yo-yo, right? That's what our sanctification looks like, right? Sometimes it's up, sometimes it's down. But all the while, we're making progress up those stairs, right? We're continuing along. And that's what's being talked about here. And this all happens because of the enabling work of the Holy Spirit working in our life. And so as we grow in our relationship with Christ, our lives begin to be transformed into Christ's image, our way of thinking and acting. Again, it all begins to be more influenced by the Holy Spirit, and we start to bear fruit. Our lives start to bear fruit. We start showing the fruit of being in Christ, of being a believer. The third aspect of salvation that Paul references is redemption. And this is a term that has to do with deliverance. And it's a, it's a term that had a rather rich history, if you think about the, the Jewish people that, that expressed their deliverance from the bondage of Egypt. It's a, it's a word that has a greater emphasis on deliverance of captives rather than a, um, a ransom by payment. So Paul used the term to denote the believer's deliverance from the bondage of sin, as evidenced in Colossians 1, 13 through 14, where he writes this. He says, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Christ is our Redeemer in the sense that he delivers us from guilt, from hell, from sin, from the power of Satan, as well as from the grave. And there is both a present and a future deliverance for the believer with the future deliverance coming at the time when we finally get rid of these sin-cursed bodies, these bodies that are breaking down and wearing out and that are just spread out with sin. A day is coming when those bodies will be replaced 
and we will get a new body, a resurrected body, a body that will be perfect. And what a day that will be. I look forward to that day the older I get. But Christ is our Redeemer, right? And we have a lot to rejoice in with that. When we look at salvation, the wisdom of God manifested in Christ, we, we can't help but be amazed at the grace <clears throat> and the mercy that has been lavished on each and every one of us. Such an unworthy group of people, and yet, nonetheless, God has given it to us. Right? We haven't earned it. We don't deserve it. But God, in his kindness, gives it to us. And, and yet, because he gives it to us freely, we should live differently. Now, again, I don't know about you, but I know for me, you know, as I think about these types of things, sometimes I just wonder why. God, why would you, why would you do such a thing for such a pathetic, insignificant, unappreciative person like myself, and I don't think I'm alone, amen? God, why would you do that? Well, I believe that the answer to that question can be found in the last verse, and it says this, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. See, God confirms his matchless mercy by working in the hearts of a bunch of insignificant people, just like you and me. All right, all human boasting is completely eliminated when we come face to face with the wisdom that God displays to us in Christ because it's only our union with Christ that can bring that salvation. Man's wisdom, man's wisdom can't do that, right? Man's wisdom is absolutely useless in regards to salvation. It will do you no good. So get this, even if you are well thought of by the world, even if you have people praising you, and respecting you and acknowledging your, your savvy and your intellect and all of these things, it is meaningless before the Lord. It has absolutely nothing to do with your salvation. Our confidence needs to be in Christ, not in ourselves. Our confidence needs to be upon his work, upon the cross, not in some insignificant accomplishments on, of our own. Take anything that you've ever done. Do, do me a favor. Take anything that you've ever done that you may be particularly proud of, something that you've achieved, something that you've, you've kind of worked really hard for. And I want you to take that and then I want you to kind of hold it up to Christ's work upon the cross. And I want you to just kind of say, okay, how does my, how does my work look in comparison to that? Where's my boasting? These are things that we need to do periodically, right? And again, I, when we do this, our, our things that we get so caught up in, they're so, they, 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 they shrink down to size, right? They become insignificant. They become meaningless. And they really don't control us or, or they shouldn't control us the way that they tend to do when we don't think rightly. And again, I, I don't say all this, brothers and sisters, to belittle anybody out there. I'm sure some of you worked really hard to get to the places where you're at in your work. But again, I, d I don't want you trusting in that because that's not going to make you right with God. That's not going to improve your relationship with God. I'm, I'm trying to challenge you to think rightly so you can have a proper view of yourself and a, a more correct view of God. I mean, for many of you, you're, you're not boasting in the Lord as you ought to if we're going to get real. I mean, instead, you're, maybe you're boasting in your house. Maybe you're boasting in your car. Maybe you're boasting in your, your toys, in your business achievements, in your retirement portfolio, right? in your whatever you fill in the blank. So the question is, what are you going to do, brothers and sisters? Are you going to continue to put your confidence in yourself or in things? 
Or are you going to finally take the step of faith whereby you place your confidence, your boast, in the one who loved you and gave himself up for you? See, the only way we can do this is to turn away from our pride and to start practicing humility. It's the only way it's going to happen. But I assure you, this isn't going to be easy. This isn't something that just happens. It takes work. It's an elusive pursuit. It's been said by somebody this, humility is something we should constantly pray for, yet never thank God that we have. It is indeed a strange thing because the minute you think you've got it, you've lost it. So this morning we've opened up the Word of God together so that we might learn to be more humble. We've learned three truths that I pray will impact each of us in a very radical way. These, these three truths where God's call of the insignificant conflicts our worldly wisdom. God's call of the insignificant confounds our personal pride. And God's call of the insignificant confirms his matchless mercy. Brothers and sisters, Calvary Bible Church is a wonderful church. We have a lot of things to be excited and thankful for. But we need to make sure that we don't lose sight of what really matters. Right? As we grow, uh, as we live and breathe and operate within a, uh, a more affluent society in Burbank, it's real easy to start putting our hope and our trust in those things. Or maybe it's real easy to kind of put our hope and our trust in, in some kind of wisdom that we have or something that we, we have or that is apart from Christ. But I want to challenge us to, to really practice this humility, to not just be hearers of it, but to actually put it into practice, to actually take steps to consider others as being more important than yourselves. Let us remember that it is God himself who says that he opposes the proud, but that he gives grace to the humble in James 4, 6. Let us be a church that encourages one another to that end. Let us never become so puffed up in ourselves, what we have, what we maybe bring to the table within this body, that we lose sight of what it is that God's done. God's got a big picture that he's working on. He's, he's using us to bring glory to his son, Jesus Christ. And let's make sure that we are a body of believers who boast in the God who loved us enough that he was willing to send his son to step down out of heaven and do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Let's live out of gratitude for that. Let's view everything in light of what God has done for us. And when we do that, brothers and sisters, I am confident that we will walk in humility and bring glory to God and point others to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's close in a word of prayer, and then we'll get you dismissed after this. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for your word, and thank you for this time that we've been able to gather together. Father, I do just pray that you will just allow us to take these words, to think about them, Lord, to chew on them, and to just examine our own lives and see if there's things in our hearts and in our minds, Lord, that need that we need to repent of, that we need to confess things that we are secretly boasting in other than the work of Jesus Christ. So, Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters and I pray that you will encourage their hearts and help them to continue to grow, to be more conformed into the image of Christ. Father, I pray if there's anybody out there that does not know you, that uh, has not trusted in the perfect work and person of Jesus Christ, I pray that you will uh, use this message, Lord, to just see them, to help them to see that um, how things really are. Lord, we, we have nothing to boast in other than what you've done for us. So we thank you for that. And we pray that uh, Christ would be exalted as we live out these lives that you've given us. 
And we ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen.